So we spent the last two weeks looking at the characteristics of the elders, the overseers, the bishops, whatever you want to call them, and the deacons and their wives or the deacons and the deaconesses, depending on how you look at that in Greek. But either way, what we all observed is the Christian character. I mean, I don't think we say, we look at verse Timothy 3 and say, oh, there's the characteristics of the leaders, but not the rest of the church. No, they're just saying this. We all need to be that person. We all need to have that character. But those who are in a place of leadership, which I would just simply say targets for Satan to aim at. <laughs> when you become a leader, you begin to be more fruitful in your life. You will see that there is greater spiritual attack. And can you take it? And so it's just those who have spent time proving that they are solid Christians walking in a solid way. Not just at church for show, but it's a real thing that's happened in their home, in their work, the rest of their life. I'll tell you what, I, I, I know so many people that are embittered at the church because they grew up in a home where they lived one way at home, and then on the way to church, the parents would tell them, don't tell about this, don't say about that. We want to go to church and appear differently than we really are at home. And that put a great bitterness in the kid's heart, thinking there's such a hypocritical thing that everybody else is playing that same game, the same game of, of um, pretending to be a Christian at church or trying to look holy at church when the kids know good and well they're not that way at home or somebody at their work says man they're not that way at work they don't act like you're I, I had no idea they were a Christian at work and I didn't even know they believed in Jesus till I was invited to this church and I saw there's a guy one of my co-workers man he's the the most crass the most rude the most ungodly guy at work but yet he's an usher here or a leader here it, you see that just can't be can it because that's not Jesus. Jesus wasn't a hypocrite. Jesus didn't put on a pretense. Jesus didn't try to act a certain way publicly and another way privately. It's a true and genuine thing to know Jesus and walk with him. So where we are in the word is where we are. These next three verses really answer that question. Are we essential? <laughs> I mean, that's really it. It's, it's so funny that, that they can say, and, 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 and to me, it's just like, this is so obviously twisted. Where the governor says, oh, yeah, the liquor source, they need to stay open. Oh, you can't get coronavirus in a liquor store? No, but it's essential because we know people will go mad without their alcohol. They'll, they'll have, you know, try to make them go dry. Uh, that, that would be a hard thing on top of the. So, so we're just, and, and marijuana. All the marijuana guys can sell, and boy, they've been selling out. They, they've been, you know, you think uh, Amazon's been doing good. In the states where there's, they're selling marijuana, they're, they're, they're becoming millionaires during this time. But yet, as twisted as that is, 
we need the alcohol, you're an essential worker, we need the drug place, you're an essential business. But then it comes to church, they just think of it as a big waste of time to begin with. It's, it's like a bowling league with no bowling. You know, it's like going swimming, but there's no pool. You guys are an organization that does nothing, that helps no one, that accomplishes nothing. It's a bunch of ignorant people talking about myths and, and, and the facts of their beliefs are, are stupid. So you bunch of stupid people who go to church and do stupid things and talk about stupid things, and you're a bunch of idiots. If you had a half a brain, you'd be an atheist. And, and, and so we're going to protect you. Now, if the governor would really think about it, we are the kind of people he wants us to die. It's like church. You can meet, but you got to meet every day. And everybody's got to be there. I mean, that's really what they would like you to say. That's really what they're thinking. But in essence, I think that us as believers say, yes, the church is important, but we don't realize how important. And the fact is, the church is essential for every society. He first tells Timothy in verse 14, man, I, I, I hate to write this to you because I wanted to give this to you in person. In 1 Timothy 3.14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. So Paul said, I really wanted to, you know, not just give you the skeleton of this. I really wanted to spend some time and talking about it and putting meat on the bones. But it's too unpredictable what's going to happen with me. Because he's led by the Spirit. And, and Paul would be at one place for a day, another place at a week, another place at three weeks, another place at six months, another place for three years. He did not know. And, and so he couldn't say, I'm heading to Ephesus when the Lord is leading him to go off to Europe or, or Greece or wherever he was supposed to go. So he says, I better just get it to you right now in an outline form. And of course, when you think about it, that's how we got most of the New Testament. <laughs> Paul's saying, I want to be there in person, but I'm in prison. Um, I hope to come and tell, talk to you soon if Satan doesn't hinder me, he says. If I'm not delayed. Or we read in 1 Corinthians 11, he was shipwrecked. <laughs> or 2 Corinthians 11, shipwrecked. He said, I've been shipwrecked three times. Can you believe that? And then we read about a fourth time in the book of Acts. I was on a plane one time, and, and I can't remember where I was flying, but there was this um, Filipino guy next to me, and we really hit it off. You know, it was just, it was just and he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm from the Philippines, but, you know, I sell wood. I, I go to a country who needs wood, you know, to make houses or whatever, and, and I sell them, you know, just tons of wood. And so I'm, that's what I am. I'm a broker. And he said, since 1964, he didn't look that old. He goes, I've been on a plane continuously. And I'm like, and he was telling me, I mean, because he was flying nonstop. And I said, then, you, you, you know, you haven't been in a wreck? He goes, I've been in three of them. <laughs> and one of them, 
Only two people survived, and he was one of them. He had scars all over his body. And then I felt so good. And what are the odds of the plane crashing again on the fourth time? You know, statistically, that plane that I was on with this guy, I'm very safe, statistically so. So what are the odds of the fourth one? With Paul, a four shipwreck. So he didn't know where he was going to be, but this is how we got most of the New Testament. Paul wanting to speak in person, but the Holy Spirit leading it that he would write it for us today. Well, in verse 15, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church, the word ecclesia, called out ones of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Boy, I, I think Paul, you can even hear how emotional he is even in the writings. Usually you can't tell somebody's emotions in the writings. But, but he is just pronouncing it. And he's saying to Timothy, you might know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. It starts with you. And of course, God knew we would be reading the scripture. So we hear it talking to us. And, and it's really true. I, I, can't, I can't help anybody else hollow the house of God. I can't help anybody else respect the church like God respects the church. But I can understand in my growth as a Christian how profound a church is where you have godly leaders really walking the walk. And their example is going to trickle on down until all of these young Christians are coming in, seeing these radical, mature, obedient Christians. And before you know it, you've got this church that's growing, but it's a solid group of people really living the life, not pretending so. And so, Timothy, it starts with you. you just you, as the pastor there, if you will just understand how you conduct yourself in this place. And when you think about conducting, if you were on an island, you don't have to conduct yourself at all, right? You can do whatever you want, whenever you're done. But the whole idea of conducting yourself is talking about a behavior because other people are around. And so what we're talking about is your behavior and how it affects other people. And this is what we get in all of Paul's letters, but here in 1 Timothy 2. He, said, he, he makes it clear how your conduct first affects God. Secondly, how your conduct affects Christians. And then thirdly, how your conduct affects the non-Christian world observing us. And so he says, this is a real thing. He just talked about the conduct. And he just said, you know, try to to find guys to, that are at the, a certain point in their maturity before you make them leaders. That doesn't mean they're going to maintain that after they're leaders. But it doesn't appear that if they're not living according to that conduct after they become leaders, that they have to then stop being leaders. It's more of in the midst of their struggling time as a leader, you're strengthening them as they continue to lead. And so he says, as for you, you be this guy and keep being this guy. In the house of God, the church. 
You know, Jesus takes this thing really, really seriously. At one point in Matthew 16, 18, he said to the, the boys there and, and to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus was pretty passionate about this thing. This thing that exists, it doesn't exist now, but I'm going to start it existing. I'm going to be the one building this, and I'm going to build it in a way that Satan can do whatever he wants, and it won't destroy it. So we got, we got to remember, this. the Bible doesn't ever say, oh, your church. It says God's church. That's, it's, that's the fact. We're not in our house. We're in God's house. Now, it's my church. Well, no, not really. It's God's church that I attend. It sounds like a semantic. But we got to understand where two or three get together in his name. He's there. Are we a church that Jesus would go to? But I'll tell you what. I, I, I've seen the churches on TV. I've been to some wild and crazy churches. And I'll have to tell you. I don't think Jesus would go to them. Even though they're preaching a lot of truth, I just think it's weird, unlike him. He wasn't weird. <laughs> and when I think of Jesus and having a church like Jesus, I actually think Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, preaching to the multitudes, talking to this group of 12 here, talking to this group of 70 here, going to people's houses and eating and and. And it's just, that's the picture. I don't see guys with priestly outfits and grand poobah hats and incense flying and, <laughs> and candles burning and, and all of this stuff that it just do, it's, doesn't make me picture the carpenter from Nazareth who got these fishermen and a few others and teaching them about the kingdom of God. And, and we need to ask ourselves, if, if, are we doing weird stuff that we sort of evolved in doing that, that really Jesus wouldn't like that? This is Jesus' church. He says in Acts 20, verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourself, to the Ephesus church that Timothy is a pastor of, and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which, what? He purchased with his own blood. Are we getting the idea here? I forgot to add the verse Ephesians 5 where it says Christ loved the church and died for the church. You know, God loves us. That's the truth. But that's not what you find being said a lot. You, you don't see Jesus saying, Ah, Peter, I love you, man. It doesn't happen. It's not in the gospel. It's not there. He loved them. It says they looked at the rich young ruler and Jesus loved him with his eyes and his heart. But it does say he loves the church. It doesn't actually say he died for you, although that's true. It actually says he died for the church. Interesting. He doesn't call you particular his bride, but he calls us together his fiance, the church. There are a bunch of hypocrites. You're talking about Jesus' fiance, since he's the most powerful being in existence. 
for your own health. Don't do that. That's his bride. He sees her as beautiful. And I'll tell you what, love is in the eyes of the beholder. I've been around the world, and, and what one country thinks is beautiful, another country thinks is ugly. And you can go to a country where the most beautiful women are all single, because in that country, they think those most beautiful women are beautiful. But yet this other country is going, the most beautiful women aren't pretty there. What's up? It's, it's a very much how your brain is connected what you see. And Jesus sees us together here tonight as beautiful. Now that's my beautiful bride. We've got to remember that. This is my church. I love it. I died for it. I purchased it. I bought it with my blood. And he's telling these leaders, you're in God's church. Here's how you need to conduct yourself. If you were all by yourself, and some people try to make Christianity that, it's between me and God. Leave me alone. I don't want to go to any church. I don't believe churches should be organized, or Christianity should be organized. I think everybody should be isolated, believing in God however they want to isolate and believe in God. No such pictures in the Bible. It's you believe and we come together, and you are put within that body of believers. There's no solo in that body of believers. We need to know how to conduct ourselves towards each other, towards God, towards the world. And then also, we see Jesus' heart in John 2, verse 15 to 17, where he's going to cleanse the temple. He does this here in John at the beginning of his ministry. And in, in another gospel, he does it at the end of his ministry, does it twice. And he grabs a whip and he turns over the money-changing tables. And then he says, my father's house is not to be a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered, the zeal for your house has eaten me up. It's a prophecy. Now, it's interesting because the Judaism that Jesus was dealing with was a cult. There was the Pharisee cult. There was the Sadducee cult. It was, it was demonic. Jesus plain out and called it demonic. You guys are sons of hell, and those you get to follow you are twice the sons of hell as yourself. You're about to whitewash tombs of dead men's bones. So the Judaism wasn't the Judaism of the Old Testament before Babylon. But after Babylon, they created a Judaism that after Ezra and Nehemiah, they built the temple and the walls. It just, over those 400 years before the New Testament came, it, it had just morphed into something that hated the true God, <laughs> hated the God of that religion because it was nowhere near it. And who built the temple? It was Herod. We are talking about a very wicked man, a man that tried to kill Jesus, didn't get him, but he wiped out all the babies of Bethlehem, a baby killer. Seriously. A very wicked man built that temple. So you think Jesus would have said, I'm never going up to that place. It's a bunch of cults, separate little groups of cults, and it's in a building built by a man with bloody, putrid, wicked hands. But Jesus didn't, did he? 
He said, these people are representing of the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their intentions is that that God would be worshipped. And I'm going to identify that. So, you know, that gives me hope. That, that, that God would see us as his church. I don't think we're that far off. But also, I would think that maybe he would think our building is that. The building we rent or the building we own. That we would also have the sense when we come into the building and where the building we meet, the place we gather, that it becomes at that moment the house of God. And I, I really do believe it does. Even though it's just a building and we get that. And people say, well, aren't we the temple of God? We are. First Corinthians 3, verse 16 and 17 says plainly that, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. And do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you have bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So yes, individually, God's Spirit living in us is like the Holy Spirit being in the Holy of Holies in the temple. So in a sense, we individually are the, are the temple of God as well. But yet, that's not what he's talking about here in the church of the living God. He's talking about us coming together. In Matthew 18, 20, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And it says that this church is the church of the living God. Another way of saying it, we are the church of the God who is life-giving. Jesus is the living God, but because he lives, he gives life. Right? I raise from the dead, I give you eternal life. This is what is to be represented in the church. But I was raised in a denominational church that it was more like going to a funeral every week. It really was. And I, I really don't mean to be rude about it. We all had to wear our suits and our ties. And, and, and we went. And, and even the most joyful songs, people sing it like it was a funeral. Everybody was drab. You never lifted hands. You never clapped hands. And you could just move a little bit in an auditorium of a couple hundred people and everybody knew you moved. And as a kid, you went in there and you sat there. You didn't understand anything going on, but you had to endure it. And it was painful. And I think that we can do that to ourselves. If we don't realize that I'm coming and this is a place of life giving, this is a place of the living God, this is where God is coming together with us in a special way, two or three gathering together in his midst. In Jeremiah 10.10, 10, Behold, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. In Matthew 28, you know that story where the angel said, Don't be afraid. He is not here. He is risen. In 1 Corinthians 15, 
For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the whole gospel. Three things. And the third thing is the most important one. And he rose again on the third day. This is the gospel. And so every time we come together at the church, it's not a church of just God. It's the church of the living God. The one who conquered our sin, the one who has risen again, but the one who gives life to us. And this, you know, just for a little side note here, talking about communion. I believe communion is a special place that God wants to give life. I really do. Why do you say that? Because in 1 Corinthians 11, it says if you take it in a wrong way, you get weak. You get sick. And as a Christian, it'll just take you home early. You'll die. How do you take it unworthy? I, I don't know. I think it's just turning something that's supposed to be life-giving into something that's dead. Just going through the motions. Ah, here's some bread. Ah, here's some juice. Oh, I go through this ritual. I, I think that's dishonoring. So I, I just want to flip those verses. If you take it in an unworthy manner, it affects you. It weakens you. It can make you sick. You could even die. We'll flip it around. If you take it in a worthy manner, instead of weakening, it strengthens. Instead of making you sick, it heals you. Instead of dying, it gives you a newness of life. Wouldn't that be? But, but I'll tell you what, it's just not something that has no effect. And, and that's why I want to make it clear. It's not just some ritual we go through. Why do we go through this ritual? Because we need to remember Jesus' blood and his body, and that's why we go through this ritual. There is no rituals. I believe there's a special blessing when somebody's baptized in water. I believe there's a special blessing when somebody's giving their tithe, that top 10%. God said, I'll open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing more. When you do it as worship. But somebody can write a check in a dead way, can't they? Somebody can sing in a dead way, can't they? Somebody can pray in a dead way, unbelieving, just mumbling stuff, and they don't even know themselves what they're saying. They're just sort of... No, we need to understand that this place is to be life. And when we are worshiping you, well, the guy next to me, I don't think he really means it. You, you can't deal with him. But you, yourself, conduct yourself towards God, recognizing you are the living God. You are the life-giving God. And I am a leaky vessel that needs to be filled and keep being filled with the Spirit. So I'm coming together. Jesus is here. He's here in a special way. He's bringing with him the resurrection power for every one of us. And so it's a time as we worship him in song, worship him. I'll tell you what I believe is the most important worship at church. And that is afterwards when we share with one another. He says, church, be, let the word of God dwell, dwell in you richly and speak to one another. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. It's poetic. It's beautiful. It's life-giving. It's like a poem. It's like a song. It's like, a, it's like this 
well-orchestrated psalm that David put together. It's, it's a powerful, life-giving thing. Man, it, it grieves me when I go to churches and it's like leaving a movie. The last amen is given and people file out and they can't get in their cars quick enough to get out of there quick enough. And I'm like, no, the most important part now is simply asking, what did God speak to you? And you be ready to answer that question yourself. And what did God speak to you this week? What have you been reading? What did the Lord speak to you? What trials are you going through? What fiery darts are happening? In your sphere, who's burdening your heart? This guy at work, this guy at my neighbor, this relative of mine. Let's pray about that. That is the most important worship we have. Coming early, praying, staying after, ministering, speaking all of the abundance of your own heart, all that God's done. Well, this, guys, happens to be the pillar and the ground of truth. Now, one southern pastor said, yes, this is the ground, like the hard foundation. And then it's comforting, like a pillar. When I lay down on my bed at night, I just get this nice pillar and I just put it under my head and go right to sleep. No, this is not, this is not a pillow, okay? This is one of those big concrete or marble things like the Romans had that are many are standing. Over 2,000 years later, they're still standing. Giant pillar. I'll tell you, those things are impressive when you lean up against them or try to imagine somebody out of one piece of rock chiseling that architectural, beautiful thing. It's so solid. So the church is the foundation, and then there's pillars, which the roof is supported. The church has the divine responsibility of upholding the truth of God's word. Do, do we understand this? It's not happening anywhere else. It's not happening in the universities. It's not happening from the philosophers. It's not happening from the politicians. It's not happening from this new generation that's all on fire. No justice, no peace, no justice, no truth. What should we do? Defund the police. Defund the water department. That'll get them. Shut off all the electricity. That'll wake them up. Stop the sewage from working. But here's the thing. The church in China is a threat. They lock them up. They kill them. They torture them and kill them. In America, in the Western culture, they simply shame you. They make you feel like a nerd. You're uncool. You're not the end crowd. If you go to church while you're in college, they're going to make fun of you. I don't know which one's worse. I, I, I think sometimes it's easier just to get beaten up and thrown in jail and just keep your cool. But here i got to play this mind game. I, if they know to go to church, they're going to think I'm uncool, and then they won't want me to hang out with them. And, and you know, and Guys, they don't have wisdom. They are saying stupid, nonsensical, idiot things. 
the truth of the Bible is genius compared to defund the police and let's go from being a, a country of freedom to a socialist or communist country because that will solve all the problems. <clears throat> do, do we realize it? They're speaking nonsense. We're speaking truth. They're speaking evil is good and good is evil. We're speaking evil is evil <laughs> and good is good. Purity is purity. Abortion really does kill a baby. Well, it's a fetus. Do you realize that's just a Latin word for baby? <laughs> just because you change something to Latin doesn't mean that. So again, these things are truths. And again, it's not going to be coming from somewhere else. It's either coming from the church or it's not coming at all. So don't let them play the mind game with you. Well, the church is for old lady and little kids. You know what? I know the day that Satan probably spoke that. I can, I can hear the writers of, Ellen, uh, of Poe and, and of these other great writers in the 20s. They, they made everybody who went to church a bunch of hypocrites and idiots and if you have any self-respect whatsoever you don't go to church unless it's for a funeral for your parent outside of that if you want to keep your cool don't go to church because what they're saying at church is nonsense it's not nonsense the unbelievable the unbelieving world the only way a shadow of truth is going to fall upon them is from the church and I have seen it. I've been a church without our own building, and I've built three different church buildings. Satan hates church buildings. You could have a cross. We're talking about one piece of stick and another piece of stick like this. It could be five feet high, and it could be on a hill out in the middle of the mountains that only one person every 10 years walk, walks by. And Satan hates that. He will get some environmentalist out there to get that cross down. He does not want two pieces of sticks looking like this on any hill, no matter how obscure. He's threatened by the church. And then you think about a whole building <laughs> in town. Believe me, I've been... I've had this not knocked out of me through three different building projects. It is painful, but at the same time, you, you know that it's, it's, it's a sign of the truth. Even its very presence, its very existence, angers the enemy. So when you look at a society with a solid church, not a religious orthodoxy with deadness in it, but a living church, in that society, the society is always richer for it. Women are respected. The elderly are respected. The unborn child is respected. Life itself is seen as life. Whether it's in the womb or it's a hundred-year-old person that's been in bed for ten years. Life is life. 
because this is what the Bible teaches us. But now you go to a society like we see in Germany, like we see in England, and like now we are on the hills of repeating both of those countries' de-evolution, if you would, of the church. When the church quits existing substantially, the societies go down. It's less of a place to live. It's less safe. It's less prosperous. It's less friendly. It's less social. It's just a lesser place. People are more isolated. They keep to themselves. And they're not coming together. Do, do you understand that? What we have when we come together, all of us having the same doctrine in our heads, all of us believing the same things, we don't, we don't have to discuss it. I've been to countries where I don't know their language at all, but I can immediately sense their spirit and my spirit both have the spirit of God in them. And they're my brother, they're my sister. And we can talk through a translator and it's like I've known them my whole life. The spirit of God does that. There is nothing like the church. We are the embassy of Christ. Do you think about that? <laughs> We're the heavenly embassy. Hey, I need to know what God thinks. Right over here, the church. We're the pillar and the ground of the truth for God. We're his embassy. We're the hospital. I've got a cure. I, I, I mean, I, I finally realized that I'm dying, not physically, spiritually. I, I finally got it. I'm a destructive person. Destructive to myself, destructive to everybody else. Even though I'm wealthy, even though I'm famous, I, I want to kill myself so bad. I'm so depressed. It hurts to live. Even though I'm a millionaire in a house on the beach in Malibu and I, I'm a famous actor, my last 30 years to stay alive have been miserable. I wish I would have killed myself 30 years ago. That's what's going on in the hearts of people, guys. This, this is the reality. They, they need you. They need the church. They need the truth. And I understand on the outside, they look like... When I was uh, 19 years old, I was working out at the college I was going to, and it was a Friday night, about 10 o'clock, so you, you can imagine I, I didn't have much of a life. <laughs> but I didn't really care. I was just studying the Bible. and But anyway, I was in this one guy, and and... I think my shirt on somehow said he's a Christian, and he started mocking me. He was an atheist, and his dad was a rocket scientist, and he was becoming a rocket scientist, and he was raised as an atheist, so very intellectual. I had I had no knowledge of any questions an atheist might ask, but I just started telling him, you know what? I, I just got to make it clear to you. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. On the third day, he rose again. He conquered all your sin. If you will believe in him, God will take away your sin. Oh, can God make a rock too big for himself to pick up? Um, yes. Well, then he's not God. Well, then he'll pick it up afterwards. You can't do that. Well, I know this, that you're a sinner and you know you're a sinner. And as we're talking right now, the Holy Spirit's confirming that you're, you're guilt of your sin. Well, let me ask you another question. You know, and he starts all these questions and I didn't, didn't affect me at all. I didn't go like, maybe I should be an atheist. Oh, these guys have really great arguments. I, it never even dawned on me. And we, it was just me and him for about 45 minutes, and, and he was done, I was done. 
I'm getting ready to walk out the gym door and he grabbed me and he said, how do I become a Christian? I, had, I did not see that coming. I thought he was going to go back and tell all his friends he met an idiot Christian and, you know, ate him up and spit him out. Because I'm sure he destroyed me in the arguments. If there was a panel, he won the argument. No doubt about it. But God is real. His Holy Spirit is real. People really are hurting. People really are sinners. People really want the truth. And we are it. We're it. We're the hospital. We're the bank. Everybody's in poverty. And we're the only bank where they can withdraw some money. We're it. There is no one else doing it. If you're thinking somebody else will share the Lord, somebody else will disciple them, somebody else will tell my neighbor, somebody else will tell my coper, somebody else will get bold and talk to my relatives. You're wrong. God is saying to us, respect the church. And we are the church individually. We come together. Christ is with us. We are this incredibly solid foundation that cannot be moved. It goes high. It goes large. It is solid and beautiful. And, and, and it's like these credible pillars. Jude 3 says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. It's foundational. It's unmovable. It's, it's something that, that just has no ability to change. And this faith we had is the same faith that was preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost. It's the same faith that was preached by Paul all over the place and all of their sons in the faith after them. And it's been handed down to us the same exact faith they contend for, we are contending for. And this is unchangeable. It was once for all given. It's been delivered and there's no change whatsoever in it. It's the truth. In John 14, 6, it tells us, Jesus said, I am the way and what? The truth and the life. No one comes to me or no one comes to the Father except through me. Remember in Pilate, <laughs> when Pilate snarled and said, oh, the truth, what's the truth? Remember Jesus questioned him about the truth? Yes, believe me, they're bitter. The world's bitter about truth. They're bitter about us saying we have truth. And then we tell them the truth of Jesus. In John 8, 31 and 32, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So the truth comes from God's word. God is truth. God speaks truth. God has written the truth. And this truth is always true, never changes, and God does not lie. Romans 3, 4 says, Indeed, God be found true in every man a liar. It was true in Noah's day. <laughs> there was one found true and everybody else a liar and died in the flood. In Psalms 119, 160, it says, The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endure forever. 
Psalms 18.30 is, For God, his way is perfect, and the word of God is proven, tested over and over again, tried, burned, heated up, cooled off. It's a shield to all those who trust in him. Psalms 19.7, The law, or the word of God, that's the way they said it in those days, the word of God, or the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. There we go. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. In John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And then he goes on in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Dip them in the truth. You know, just soak them in the truth. Pickle them in the truth. And just as I am true, they will be true. As I sanctified, pickled myself in truth, everything that came from me was truth. Now in them, everything that comes from them is truth. Sanctify them, baptize them, wash them in it, soak them in the truth. Boy, there's a long way I could go on this. I'm just going to wrap it up by saying the, it's powerful. It's complete. It's indestructible. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture has been given by inspiration of God. This means God breathed it. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, how a non-believer becomes a believer, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped in every good work. Think of that. By studying from Genesis to Revelation, that includes the minor prophets, by the way, just in case you were wondering. In 2 Peter 1.3, as his divine power was given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So life, the practical issues of this life, marriage, raising kids, being good stewards, being, having friends, being a friend, and godly things, the spiritual things, both of them. They're all through the knowledge of him, Jesus, who called us by glory and virtue. In Matthew 5.18, for surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot, one tittle will by no means pass away from the law till it's fulfilled. In Matthew 24, 35, the heaven and the earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Guys, this is the truth. This is the facts. This isn't something we conjured up, something some apostle conjured up, and, and then this myth got passed down through generation and generation, and somehow we've kept this myth going. That's from the pit of hell. And now in verse 16 begins a hymn or a creed. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So without debate amongst believers, whatever church you go to that's truly the church of God, Here's six things that every one of them will believe. And it was probably in a song or in some kind of creed. But again, he warned Timothy early in chapter 1. He's going to warn him in chapter 4 next week. Powerful teaching next week about the last days. But he says, even though these demonic false teachers with false doctrines and even demons themselves come against the truth, come against the church, it's not going to face us without controversy. There's, it's a common confession. People say the same thing. 
It's beyond all question. It's without any doubt. Great is the mystery. Mystery is not the same way as our word mystery. It's, the word mystery means a truth that wasn't known that's now known. So when they read the Old Testament, they're like, we know the Messiah, we just don't know who the Messiah is. Well, now we know the mystery of who the Messiah is. It's simply that these mysteries, Paul uses this word a lot, mystery. It's in the incarnation of Christ in 1 Timothy 3.16. The indwelling of Christ in believers, God's Holy Spirit living in us, Colossians 1, 26, 27. The unity of Jews and Gentiles coming together into one church, Ephesians 1, 9 and 3, verse 4 through 6. The saving of the gospel, Colossians 4, 3. Lawlessness, what that really is, 2 Thessalonians 2, 7. Of the rapture of the church, the mystery of that in 1 Corinthians 15. So, great is that mystery, and now of godliness. It's referring to Jesus coming into human flesh, God, and his godliness present with us on earth. But then it's also speaking of the mystery of us becoming like Christ, receiving his righteousness. And then also the sanctification of becoming more and more righteous of the Spirit as we walk in him. Here are the six confessions. God was manifest in the flesh. Incredible. That God Almighty came into human flesh through the Virgin Mary. In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. And then in John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In Hebrews 1.3, it says, being of the brightness of his glory, God's glory, the express image of his person, the exact nature of God in human flesh, upholding the things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The high priest has a chair. You know, you go back to the temple and the tabernacle, no chairs. Because people were always sinning, there's always sacrifices had to be given. But in the heavenly temple, there's a chair because it is finished. And then justified by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit bear, bore witness that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice without sin. In Romans 4, it says, And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, or we would say the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead. He raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And in Romans 8, it mentions that it's a witness of Jesus' righteousness. In 1 Peter 3.18, And Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive, how? By the Spirit. And then he was seen by angels. I put all the Bible verses in here for you. I had no intentions of reading them. But we see the angel appeared to Mary and Joseph for the preparation of Jesus. We see at Jesus' birth, angels singing to the shepherds. I love Christmas time. Oh, I love that. And I do love that scene of the heavenly host singing these angelic songs to these shepherds. Um, in his temptation, the Holy Spirit was there when Satan was pounding on him. The Holy Spirit was there to strengthen him. And of course, in his baptism, before he went to be tempted. Uh, when he was in Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. The angels came to minister to him. And then it was an angel who rolled away the stone after Jesus had already departed from it. Not to let Jesus out, but to let the 
of the disciples in to see that Jesus had risen. And then when Jesus ascended into heaven, angels were there saying, what are you guys looking at? <laughs> this Jesus who ascended will also descend. Now go and preach the gospel. And then it says, preached among the Gentiles or the nations and believed on in the world. Guys, I, I, I hope that you have had the chance to share the gospel with a non-believer and, and to see them get saved. Again, I, back in, in my teen years, I, I, I worked at this place built, making tires, stamping the sides of tires. You know, it says pounds and stuff. They actually do that by hand. I did that for a summer in between college. But I met this guy, and literally he had, didn't know anything about Christianity. He was American, but he was born in the backwoods. And, and I said, well, I finally was like, have you ever seen a building with one of these on it? He goes, what is that? Seriously, this is no joke. A guy that knew nothing to come to be a believer in Christ. It's a powerful thing when you get to pray with somebody. When I was um, in high school, I was trying to be a Christian. A single mom raised me. It was very hard situation but my best friend Don he was nothing he wasn't anything religious played football wrestled we, we played sports together knew him really well his dad was a very man of renown in town had a very solid business and very well respected and and my friend Don he knew I went to church and I would read my bible and he, he knew I was a Christian and I just always felt like Don, you are more of a righteous, honorable person as a non-Christian than I am as a Christian. How can I share it with him? That was going in my mind. And one day, my friend Don, <clears throat> he was driving. He asked to uh, drop me if I could, if he could come into my house when he was dropping me off. And he just said to me, you know there's no hope for me, don't you? You know how evil me and my family are. I'm like... I have no idea what you're talking about. You don't think that there's any hope for us because you've, you've never shared Jesus with me. I know nothing about him. And I just assume that you were assuming there's no hope for me. It was, it was powerful. I didn't know how to share the Lord. I had a four spiritual lot track. And we read it. And at the end, it said, if you want to receive Jesus Christ right now, pray this prayer. And he prayed it. And he meant it. And I lost track many years back the last i heard he was an elder in a baptist church but again i i think there's something amazing when we realize that these are the things that all believers worldwide believe that the gospel would come to all nations and that then we would see it believed on in the world in acts 1 8 he said go and be witnesses now to the ends of the earth and matthew 28 making disciples of all nations Paul tried to do it himself. He told, told the Colossian church, I think he was being a little, uh, you know, hopeful here, but he says, the same gospel that's come to you, that same gospel that's in all the world. That's the way Paul saw it at that point. And then Jesus received up in glory. We know about that in Acts 1-9, don't we? And in Hebrews 1-3 it says, who being in the brightness of his glory, the expressed image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty of high. And what's he really speaking about? That as Christ, in the brightness of his glory, in the express image of his person, that's prophesying of us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Christ. That we are going to be with Christ in heaven in all his glory. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he said it's happening right now. We all with unveiled faces. I can make a joke about that right now. <laughs> but we with all unveiled faces, beholding in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the what? Same image from glory to glory, just as the Spirit of God. Where is this happening? In the church. God's given pastors, teachers, prophets, evangelists, that we all come to the same faith, to the unity of faith, till we all come to the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. Well, Lord, we thank you that we are a part of the one eternal thing that's going to go to heaven, that's going to be forever. Not the great stadiums, not the great skyscrapers, not the great works of art, but the church will be here through the millennial period and then in heaven forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Your church is eternal. And Lord, we ask now that we would wake up that the world's trying to put mind trips on us, guilt trips on us, trying to freak us out to make us think that we have no right to tell them about you, that we are being racist and unsensitive and, and absolute sinful and wrong probing into their private world and sharing with them what your Holy Spirit's already told us, that they're sinners separated from you and that their conscience is, is bearing witness against them, that they are in a very depressed, difficult, lonely place and they're not ready for eternity. We already know that's true about us. We think of somebody stepping out of their comfort zone, terrified, shaking, sweating, sharing the Lord with us. Lord, we thank you that that little believer got bold in you and shared Christ with us. Lord, help us now to wake up. Let us now, Lord, be the church. Let us be this pillar and this ground of truth that's unmovable, that's eternal, indestructible. That we would all here know the truth, but we would shine as lights in the world, as salts in the earth. That we would not take our lamp and put it under the bushel or under the bed, but we'd get it out. And if that means we get smacked, spit upon, ridiculed, so be it. But we know that those who are called to eternal life will believe. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To those who believe, it's the wisdom and the power of God. <clears throat> and we ask in Jesus' name now that we would be the church. And everybody said, Amen, Amen. amen.